welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning, everybody. It is good to see you. Uh, If you want to keep your Bibles open, we have a Bible uh, there right in front of you. If you're at home, keep your Bibles open. We're going to go through Isaiah 6. Pretty much going to do all of the 13 verses. And so if you want to follow along, I'll be giving you a little prompt for that. But so glad you're here today as we continue in our Isaiah series. We've been going through that week to week. And last week, if you remember, in Isaiah 5, we looked at Isaiah pronouncing for the Lord six woes against the northern kingdom of Israel and the prophets, Isaiah's own southern kingdom of Judah. God had condemned them, if you heard the message last week, for their stinky fruits. That was the message last week. God wants it to be good fruit, not stinky fruit. And so we look at the book of Isaiah, and we see how the whole book, it communicates words of hope, but also words of horror. And Isaiah 6 has some words of horror and words of hope. Isaiah, as a prophet, is describing a God of majesty, and we'll see that in this chapter. Also rebellious humanity. He's going to talk about a servant king, and through this king, a future That's a big picture of Isaiah. We'll see portions of that in our section here today. Now, the Lord, otherwise known as Yahweh, we see that word actually, two different words for the Lord in this section. Yahweh, the Lord, is demanding that his people start living like he's real. He's saying, if you really believe in me, start living like it. But the problem was that the nation's sin was so ingrained it seemed that they were destined for God's judgment, God's rightful judgment against them. And it would come to pass, just like Isaiah predicts in chapter after chapter, where the Assyrian army and then finally the Babylonian army will lay waste to God's people, God's nation. It's an act of judgment from God as they keep turning their back on God again and again and again. Now, here in Isaiah 6, the prophet shifts the focus from the sin of the nation to the sin of himself, the sin in me. In the presence of a holy God, Isaiah's sin, God's prophet, becomes clear. So what I want to do, I want to take the next few minutes to highlight four things from Isaiah 6. The four things are this. First of all, God's holiness. We'll see. And then my sinfulness. Thirdly, God's mercy. And lastly, what true worship looks like. Take a look at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So here, Isaiah says he saw the Lord. But I want to remind you of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18. It says this in the Bible. No one has ever seen God. Okay, so what is true? Did Isaiah see God? Or did he not see God? Now, if God cannot be seen by humans, what exactly did Isaiah see? Now, I think it's likely that Isaiah saw a heavenly vision of the heavenly throne and the glory of God filling that space, but not necessarily God himself, the unseeable God, that he sees a glory of God, a a robe, a great robed figure, And if you even think about it, the train of the robe is really the hem of the robe, 
What Isaiah is saying, this figure so massive in this massive heavenly throne that even just the hem fills the space. This is some kind of massive vision. And so perhaps Isaiah sees a manifestation of the glory of God, this great robed figure sitting on a throne. And then verses two and three, above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, the seraphim, we believe, are fiery, angelic winged beings who cover themselves in deference to God's glory. Now, keep this in mind. If these powerful, angelic, fiery, great, powerful beings have to humble themselves in the presence of God, how much more does Isaiah need to do this? How much more do you and I, in the presence of a holy God, need to humble ourselves? These flying servants, these seraphim, not only surround the throne, but they're calling out. Maybe it's in song. Holy, holy, holy. Now I want you to keep in mind the threefold repetition of the word holy was a way that ancients would emphasize an aspect. It made the word um, have more emphasis, maybe even an exponential feel to it. Holy, holy, holy. It reminds them and reminds us God is wholly separate and absolutely perfect. Holy, holy, holy. And then I want you to listen to this. The description that hundreds of years later, the apostle John would have a vision of a heavenly throne. This is in the book of Revelation. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So I want you to think of this. Hundreds of years before Christ ever walked on earth, hundreds of years before Christ ascended to heaven after his resurrection, the prophet Isaiah gets a window into the realities of heaven and he will start prophesying about a suffering servant who will make a way for sinful humanity to be made right with God. He's going to talk about a king, a king who would give his body and his blood for you. That's that same Isaiah. Take a look at verse 4. In this vision, it says, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I want to give you a little reminder. Hundreds of years prior to Isaiah, there was a man named Moses. And Moses had an encounter with Yahweh the Lord on Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, God's presence was marked by thunder and the lightning and clouds and smoke and an earthquake. The ground shook so much. And so we get a picture from the Bible, not only Isaiah, from Moses and other encounters is this, that the come into the presence of God is no small thing. So when we gather for worship each Sunday in particular, I want to ask us, have we lost sometimes some of the awe, some of the majesty of the God that we gather around each week? 
You know, there's only so much, you know, Abby and Krista can do with the music. There's only so much I can do with a sermon. Really, there's only so much we could do for this experience to be a sense of God's presence. You know, really what it needs is before you ever walk in these doors, you've been preparing yourself with the Lord. You've been saying, Lord, make my heart right, make my mind right. Help prepare me to hear your word, to sing these songs, to offer myself as I take the bread and the cup. Does that make sense? There's only so much we can do. Oh, but you're being invited into recognizing the majesty and the glory of God. Have we lost some of that all? Let's never forget whom we worship. I'm going to tell you a story, a true story. A woman named Henrietta Mears, for me, mentioned her before. She was a Sunday school teacher at a place called Hogwood Presbyterian Church. She actually led a movement that became a global movement of evangelism and discipleship that still continues today. Henrietta Mears was a simple person in many ways, but one time she was gathering for prayer in a cabin in the mountains with four other guys, actually, and they were just praying. And in this prayer time, they said this, fire came down from heaven. Now, you had to keep in mind, these were all Presbyterians, okay? Fire came down from heaven. Another time that they were praying, these Presbyterians, the cabin literally shook from the power of God. They were in awe of the holy and awesome God that manifested itself in a physical way. Now, I have never quite had an experience like this. Personally, maybe you have. But I'm telling you, these are real things that happen. There is a God who, when he so chooses, can manifest himself in physical ways to Presbyterians sitting in a cabin praying. And as God did that, they were awed by his presence. They were aware of God's goodness. And God gave them a vision. God planted seeds in them that they might go out into the world, starting in their own neighborhood, to keep pointing people to the simple and good news of Jesus Christ. And in the presence of this holy God, they were very aware of the depths of their sin as well. They had an Isaiah 6 encounter right there down in Los Angeles County 60 years ago. Sometimes we forget we serve a God who is that great and that good, that mighty. You know, if you remember from Isaiah 5 last week, the prophet delivered six woes, six pronouncements of judgment on God's people who failed to live up to their name, being a blessing to others, being good fruit for others. Woe to the ruling elite for pleasure-seeking instead of serving others. Woe to those participating in the pagan ritual of child sacrifice. Woe to corrupt judges refusing justice for the poor. Woe to those getting drunk. Woe to those throwing indulgent parties while vulnerable neighbors suffered and were being abused. Woe, woe, woe to those who aren't following me and being generous to those in need. And here in Isaiah 6, the prophet is delivering a woe, not about them, but about himself. Take a look at verse 5. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I want you to pick this up. In the presence of 
of the one true king, Isaiah can clearly see his sin. Not others so much. His. When you spend time with the Lord, if you're really connecting with him, you're going to see your own sin more than other people's. Can I get an amen? When you're really digging into God's word and spirit's working, you're going to see the stuff you need to work on as opposed to all of the problems out there. So let me ask you, what sin is the Lord working on you in this season? And if you're like, I don't know what, well, I don't think you're listening. <laughs> you're not listening. The Lord's not working on a sin in your life. You're not listening to the Lord very well. And for some of you, actually it's because you don't have a relationship with the Lord yet. And maybe this is the first time you're hearing that there is a good and holy God who expects you to bow down to him. Not because he needs it, because you need it. Maybe that's your sin, it's your ignorance. Like you just don't know. Now you know. There's a good and glorious king who wants you to say yes to him. Woe is me. When you're really worshiping the Lord, woe is me. Your own sin becomes clear and less so of others. See, most people don't like to be reminded of any of their sins, let alone any deficits at all. That's why most of us in this room, we love being around dogs. You know why? Because you could have bad breath. You could have just lost your job. You could have just blown all your money on Bitcoin, right? And guess what? Your dog still thinks you're amazing. Not your cats, but your dogs. <laughs> cats could care less about you, but your dogs still think you're amazing. I love you, human. See, with your dog as your constant companion, you can think that you're a pretty good human being, right? You're awesome. But when you're in the presence of perfection, you become acutely aware of your deficits. So here's Isaiah, God's own prophet, coming into the presence of a holy and perfect God. Holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty. When you get close to perfection, you become very aware of your deficits. Woe is me. Even though Isaiah speaks for God, basically God has like hired Isaiah as his very own prophet. Do you notice what he says? I'm a man of unclean lips. Even the gift that God has given Isaiah, Isaiah is admitting, even that is not fully for you, Lord. Even the very thing you called me to do, God could have called you to do something for him. Great. But every day is an opportunity to say, Lord, am I really doing it for you? Am I really doing it for your glory? Even if it looks really good or Christian or being good to your neighbor, Lord, this needs to belong to you. I'm a man of unclean lips. How's God pressing into you an area that's not fully surrendered to him? You see, you will see your own sin as you get close to God because God inspires a holy fear. I know sometimes we don't like that word, that picture of God from the Old Testament in, in particular about fearing God, but we mean it in the best way. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote these series of books called The Chronicle of Narnia, and we see in these books this picture of Aslan, the Christ figure, and in this wonderful book series, it paints a picture of a good God who is not safe. That is holy fear. 
Isaiah himself in chapter 33 will say, the fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure, the key to life, the key in being in right relationship with God and right relationship to the world. The key is the fear of the Lord. See, to be in awe of God is both beautiful, wonderful, and terrifying. I don't know how many of you have ever gone to Yosemite and climbed Half Dome. Anyone out there have climbed Half Dome? First service I had to explain. I, I didn't like climb the face of Half Dome. I'm not like that athletic. I like did the hike with like kids, you know, so I climbed Half Dome, right? Beautiful, right? Beautiful, gorgeous. And I see all those crazy people who like to like go under the ropes and sneak off to the edge. That's nuts. But guess what? It is beautiful when you go to Half Dome, but it's terrifying. If you go under that rope and scoot over to the edge, it is terrifying. Is it still beautiful? Yes. Is it terrifying? Yes. And if that could be true of something that God created with a word, Half Dome, how much more the presence of God? Beautiful and terrifying. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, Isaiah says, chapter 33, is the key. The presence of God, when you know him, when you think about him, his unlimited power, unlimited perfect energy, perfection itself, beauty, power, goodness, love, Jesus Christ himself, he's beautiful, and he can be terrifying. That's the Lord. We take a look at verses 6 and 7. Isaiah continues this vision, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now keep in mind that proper worship of God, especially in these times, normally required a blood sacrifice in order to atone for Israel's sins. They did it every year, the day of atonement. And what Isaiah does, he recognizes his own sin. And in this scene, God declares Isaiah's forgiveness, even without this blood sacrifice. I want you to keep in mind that ultimately God would provide himself as the final blood sacrifice to make atonement for sins for all time. That God, this king, is a righteous judge who pays the penalty of the guilty by sacrificing himself for the good of the people. That's the bigger story. Because God's mercy is doing what we could never do. God's mercy is giving what we could never earn. Because in light of God's holiness, my sinfulness becomes apparent. But as we become close to God and our sin becomes apparent, so does his mercy become apparent. As we get into the presence of God, his mercy is revealed. God's mercy for us. God's mercy for the arrogant. God's mercy for the ignorant. God's mercy for the criminal. God's mercy for the self-righteous. God's mercy for the super sinners. And God's mercy for the spiritual smug. Oh, God, thank you for your mercy. Because I fit in one of those categories. Because we're all far from God. We all are sinners in need of a good God coming near to us and making a way back to him. You see, true worship means we need to see God's perfection and realize we need his mercy. 
Because our lack of true worship, it would condemn us because we are made to worship God. You see, it's possible to look like you're worshiping on the outside, but to be completely not worshiping on the inside. See, we all need atonement. Matthew 15 says it this way too. It says, Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. So you can look good on the outside, but be rotten on the inside. Jesus says this is sin. And when we get into his presence, our lack of true worship gets revealed. Our lack of true worship would condemn us if it were not for God's mercy. You see, we're on this planet and you're alive right now, not to please yourself, but to please God, to glorify him, to bless others. And you will find your joy, not by trying to please yourself. You'll find your joy by being a blessing to others, by glorifying God, honoring him. In fact, Romans 12 from the Apostle Paul says, we should consider ourselves in light of God's mercy as living sacrifices. He says, that's how you should live your daily life, as a living sacrifice. That we are to use our gifts and our talents and our resources to glorify God and to bless others. That an essential part of our spiritual act of worship is to be a living sacrifice every single day. To say, Lord, I belong to you. Thank you for your mercy. Your holiness, my sin, your mercy leads me to want to bless others as a response to God's mercy. See, those are those four things, God's holiness, my sinfulness, God's mercy, and lastly, true worship. Isaiah 6.8 says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. You see, both Judah and Israel as God's people, they had been tasked to be good fruit, Isaiah 5 said, but they had failed miserably. And now God's faithful prophet Isaiah is offering himself to be the good fruit that Judah and Israel had failed to do. He says, here I am, send me. So I want to remind us that spiritual growth in its essence, it's not only about what God is doing in us, but what he is doing through us. Here I am, send me. See, when God is working in you, to hate the sin you used to love, and God is working in you to love the good that you used to hate, then your inner life will naturally overflow to your outer life. Doesn't that make sense? What is in you will flow out of you for the good. See, God has blessed you so that you would bless others. And every day is an opportunity to say to God, here I am, send me. It doesn't have to just be one moment in Isaiah 6, thousands of years ago. That could be you tomorrow. Or the next day, as you come before God's word, as you recognize his majesty, as you spend time in scripture and recognize your own sin, and you realize in scripture by the Holy Spirit that God has poured out mercy upon you, then your natural response is, here I am. Send me. I, I want to be good fruit for a world in need. You know, when you look at an apple tree, you realize the apple tree makes apples not just for itself, Right? An apple tree makes apples so that you and I can eat the fruit. It exists literally to provide food for others. That's what Christ did. 
And as Christians, we follow in his footsteps. Here I am, send me. I have an older sister. You wouldn't know she's older because she's a fitness expert and a fitness competitor. So when she comes and visits and she wears her exercise outfits and you see her six-pack abs around the house, it makes me a little self-conscious, right? Because I'm trying to find my one-pack compared to her six-pack, right? And she eats healthy, so it inspires me to eat healthier whenever she comes around the house. And so one time she's reaching for a healthy snack. She saw a bowl of apples. She took the apple. She put it on the cutting board. And when she's about to cut it, we said, stop. It's a fake apple. It's decor. It's not real. If you cut into it, you're going to find it's just empty plastic. It looked beautiful on the outside, but it was empty on the inside. It had no real substance. You know, what would happen if we Christians were only concerned about how we looked on the outside instead of dealing with what's really going on on the inside? What if we never really dealt with the insides and allowed that to overflow and to truly be good fruit? You see, apples are meant to be eaten. And so Christians, we are meant to bear fruit that feeds others. We're meant to be good fruit. We're meant to be eaten in that sense, not just good looking on the outside. That when our friends and neighbors and family and strangers come in our proximity, will they taste any good fruit of the Lord? See, we are to be nourishment for our neighbors. Nourishment in our schools, nourishment in our workplaces, pointing to a good God who's speaking good truth. See, God clarifies Isaiah's text. He says, here I am, send me. Well, here's your task, Isaiah. And he gave him a tough one. Go and say to this people, these are the rebellious people, his own people, Judah and Israel, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. It's a pronouncement of judgment. These are hard words. He continues in verses 9 through 13, make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Wow. Jesus himself references these words. He says these condemning words from Isaiah 6, referring to those who have refused to receive him as Messiah and Lord. And he calls them hard-hearted, that their hearts are not only hard, but they're growing even harder. Now, I don't understand fully how the Bible points both to God's sovereign power and our human free will. I'm not going to try to explain it to you, but they both exist in the Bible. God's sovereign power and your free will. And in these verses, God seems to have made up his mind in Isaiah 6. He's done giving rebellious in Judah and Israel another chance. He's giving them chance after chance, decade after decade. But no, they're still doing child sacrifice. The judges are still getting bribed. The elites are still doing great injustice towards the poor. And he says, I'm done. And it's true. Years later, God will send Assyria and Babylon and level Jerusalem, take them all captive. No second chance. But we know God's word doesn't contradict itself because we know God is a God of second chances. Well, 2 Peter 3.9 says this, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We see the heart of God. Everyone 
to come to repentance. And we see this pronouncement of judgment along with the promise of hope. Verses 11 through 13 says this, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps, when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Very interesting verse. Israel will be chopped down like a tree and felled in a field. And I just told you, historically accurate. That happened. But a holy seed will come from this stump. And Isaiah in later chapters will give details about this holy seed in chapter 11, where he says this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And friends, we know his name. It's Jesus. There's hope for you and for me because our God is a God who wants all to repent, to recognize his holiness, that we would see our sinfulness and be amazed at his mercy and then say, Lord, I don't own my life. I belong to you. Here I am. Send me. I will be a living sacrifice every day for you and your kingdom. See, friends, when all looks lost, God provides a way. God is so patient with sinful humanity, but he calls us to accountability. We've been given eyes to see and ears to hear. And so let me ask you, is the spirit tugging on your heart and mind today that he's trying to get something through to you? God is trying to refine you in some specific way. Don't think about the other person that needs refinement, right? Think about yourself. Lord, how are you refining me? Some of you, it's just like, You never spend time with the Lord. You don't read your Bible. You don't take a walk and a prayer walk. You you don't tithe. You're not generous. Okay, whatever that list is, you don't have to tell Pastor Tim. You tell the Lord. You won't forgive that person who hurt you. That might be a longer conversation. You're holding on to your bitterness. Or maybe you live each day struggling to see the hope. The Lord wants to break through. That's what you offer the Lord. Lord, take this. I'm struggling with this. I need your help. And of course, we want to ask, we never want to assume, have you said yes to worshiping Jesus? Some of you, the main sin you have, you've never confessed your sins, really. You've never laid your life down and said, Jesus, I belong to you. Before you can participate in this bread and this cup, you need to have at least some moment in your life when you have given all of yourself to Jesus, the one true Lord and Savior. Maybe today's the day. I give up, God. I give up trying to live on my own. I give up trying to be a good person. I give up trying to compare myself to all these other people, make myself feel good about my life. I need your help. Jesus says, I'm here to help. I'm here to cleanse you from your sin. I'm here to take you into myself and to give you life everlasting. But you need to surrender. I surrender. <laughs> I give it all to you, Jesus. Can you see his mercy? Or do you see the sin in other people more? Oh, if you're going to receive his mercy, you see your own sin, you confess and say, Jesus, come in. I want to serve you. 
I'm going to close with a story before we go into the time of communion. I have a neighbor, he doesn't believe in God, and he teases me all the time for believing in fairy tales. So that's where he's coming from. We're good neighbors. We have fun. But he doesn't believe in God. And we had a time to chat last week, and this was a different kind of meeting because he wanted to tell me about his journey with terminal cancer and his treatment plan. And as I sat there and listened to him, he was talking about making a decision in his treatment plan that was going to focus more on quality of life versus length of life. You know what I'm saying? And I did what I did. I'm a preacher. And I said to my friend who doesn't believe in the Bible or God, I said, you know, the Bible says something about that. I said, you know, the Bible talks about two words for life. The first word is called bios. That's life. You know what that is? That means the blood running through your vein, your heart pumping. That's bios life. But I said, there's a second word for life. It's called zoe. And zoe life is fullness of life. It's quality of life. It's the life that's found in Jesus. And I said, can I pray that you would experience zoe life? He said, yeah. I said, Lord, I ask you would fill my friend with your zoe life and fill this room with your healing touch. And you would bring comfort in these days and weeks ahead. That he would experience your Zoe life. In the name of the Lord. Amen. Now, he doesn't believe in God, but that's okay, because I do. And I'm praying, Lord, may I be good fruit in this season to my friend. You know, when you say, here I am, send me, you might get all these grand ideas. I'm going to go to Afghanistan. I'm going to get the people who are trapped and help them sneak out. We need people like you to do that. Trust me. Or I'm going to be a missionary in Africa, or I'm going to write a book. Fantastic for the Lord's telling you to do it. Here I am, send me. But you know what? Sometimes the Lord is sending you to your neighbor. You knock on the door. Say, I know I haven't talked to you in a while, maybe a few years. Is there any way I could be helpful? Here I am, send me. You know, every Christian has the potential to bring Zoe life, the life that's found in Jesus that's in you this week. Every one of us as a follower of Christ. You know, in fact, that's our mission statement. We glorify God and we make disciples by connecting people to Christ through small acts of great love every day. Zoe life in me flowing out to others Here I am, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Send me to be good fruit to a hungry world that your Zoe life might flow in and through me. Some of you might say, Pastor Tim, I still don't know what can I do. Well, we have a few shoe boxes out there. That's one thing you could do. We have a food pantry that every day you can come and drop off food or you can go drive it over there and help us out with that. We have a homeless ministry once a month called Ark in the Park. We need underwear and T-shirts and toiletries. The list goes on and on, but the Lord might be leading you to something completely different, something radical and crazy like loving your neighbor, loving that student that's in your classroom, loving that coworker by asking him, how's your family doing? You see the opportunities to bring Zoe life. You might say, Pastor Tim, I'm in a difficult place right now. I'm not sure I could do that. I want you to know that's okay. But I want you to know there's hope. 
And as you spend time with this holy God, as you recognize your own sin, as you see clearly his mercy, and as you say, Lord, here I am, send me, but Lord, I'm pretty messed up. I don't have everything together. I want you to remind you that even you, God has a purpose for all of us imperfect people. Trust him. Trust him to use you. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.